All right. You guys want to go ahead and grab a check, seat? Check, check. All right. And once you've right. grabbed this, go you ahead can and, uh, grab get your Bibles All right. and open up to the book of Revelation. And once you've right. grabbed this, you can get your Bibles and open up to the Revelation book of Revelation. The book is the final book in the New Testament, final book in the Bible. Very exciting. This book in the well, this next week will be my tenth year in Crineville. So pretty exciting. So yeah, love this town. And Ron Halverson was riding his bike the other day, and the kids were in my truck with me, and we saw him. We're like, "There's Ron! Oh, Ron! My little babies are like." Is Ron, Ron a good Halverson guy? You know, I'm like, oh, yeah, sort of. No, um, no, Ron is a good friend. In fact, I've known Ron longer than I've known you, Lainey. And, um, and in fact, Ron helped us move into town. And I just remember standing by the garbage can hanging out with Ron when we moved in and Kevin and uh, just a great moving crew. We have good moving crews here at the church. I don't know if you know that or not. But um, anyways, 10 years here, I picked up uh, midway through the book of Luke. And, um, and then just since I've been here, we've just been walking through the New Testament and here we are beginning revelation. So, um, it's, it's a great, uh, you know, mile marker for us as we just continue to teach through the word and, uh, of course, excited to get into this very exciting book, the book of revelation. And I'm going to pray for us as we, uh, dive in this morning. Thank you, Lord, for this song uh, that you put on our heart today to sing, to keep us focused on uh, the main thing of, of the book, Lord, that Jesus wins, Lord, that Jesus is the winner, that Jesus is the glorious King of kings, the ruler of all the kings of the world, and he always has been and always will be. And as one commentator says, says that we might gaze at Jesus, Lord. We do want to do that. We want to have a glimpse of you as we study even chapter one, which gives us a beautiful description of you. I pray that as we read of you, our hearts would be changed, that we would be transformed uh, to be followers of this awesome, mighty, sovereign Lord of the universe. So uh, Lord, let the spirit be in this place, speaking through me, penetrating our hearts as we study your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, uh, this is uh, week two so far in our series. And um, if you were not here in our park service last week, I encourage you to listen to that study uh, that is on our podcast. The video was recorded there, but we had a little problems loading it this week. It will be up on our YouTube channel. By the way, we've got a YouTube channel now uh, under Calvary Prineville. We've got live stream going on. Uh, they're on the church Facebook page, so if you're ever gone, you can still be here with us, although it's not as great as, you know, being here face-to-face, am I right? Okay, so uh, as we begin to study the book of Revelation, there is uh, a key in studying the book. There's a few keys. We're going to be studying them one by one and throughout the, the book, but one of the keys to studying the book of Revelation is to familiarize yourself with Old Testament idioms, okay? An idiom is not what kids called me in high school and middle school. Um, It wasn't that nice. That was idiot. Okay. Um, An idiom is a group of words established as having a meaning 
not deducible from those of the individual words. So uh, as we study this book, there's a lot of times that you get, you're going to have to reread it. You're going to have to look at the Old Testament references to, uh, to get the puzzle put together. Uh, so often when you study the scriptures, uh, it's like coming to a puzzle. And like a puzzle, you, know, you don't just stick whatever piece there and then just try to hammer it into place. Uh, you've got to rotate it. You've got to look at it. And in the Revelations case, uh, you've got to rotate it in light of the rest of the scripture to see how it clicks uh, nicely into place. So uh, it's important to know the Old Testament idioms and references um, of the 404 verses in Revelation, 278 of those verses contain Old Testament references. So it's important to be studying the Old Testament. It's important to be studying the book of Daniel, for instance, or the book of Ezekiel, the book of Isaiah. Those are important Old Testament um, books that uh, are referenced in the book of Revelation. Almost 70% of the book of Revelation is referencing these Old Testament uh, prophecies. 360 Old Testament references are found in the book of Revelation. And it's been said, as I went to school of ministry and my teachers taught me, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. Uh, so it, it's important to just, we're going to be looking at a lot of references and having the Bible explain and interpret itself as we go through this awesome book. We remember from last week's study, verse 3, that there's a blessing in this book. There's a blessing for those who would read this book aloud, for those that would hear it, and for those who would keep it. And so it's such a wonderful thing to be part of a a heritage within Calvary Chapel that doesn't shy away from uh, getting into this book and studying it deeply and spending a lot of time in it. Many people are afraid uh, to get into it, and, and it's not something to be scared of. There's a blessing in the book. Blessed are those who read it, those who hear it, and those who keep it. It doesn't necessarily say those who totally understand it, right? Um, that happens over time. That happens, and some of it's a mystery that we'll never fully know until the time that the Lord comes. And so uh, we are excited to faithfully go through the New Testament. And as we come to uh, this word of prophecy, uh, we're going to get into it, and I'm excited for that. You'll also notice in verse 3 that John calls Revelation a prophecy or a foretelling of future events, okay? So it's an interesting book here in the New Testament to be getting into some prophecy. And when it comes to Revelation, there are generally four different schools of interpretation, okay? The first school of thought when reading and studying this book is the preterist view, okay? The preterist school of thought uh, comes from preter in Latin, which means past. The preterist school teaches that revelation has already been fulfilled. All of the events of the book of Revelation took place already back in first century Rome, okay? The second school of thought is what's called the historical view, and it teaches that revelation has uh, rather is being played out as we speak. So congratulations, you're living in the book of Revelation, okay? Uh, that's according to the historical 
school. Um, it supposedly, Revelation charts and s- the struggles and the growth of the church throughout the ages. There's the allegorical school, allegory. It believes the book is a metaphor for the battle between good and evil throughout history. And it assures that good will ultimately triumph. Um, I personally, in many teachings through the book of Revelation, uh, in many different ministries, schools of ministries, retreats and camps, uh, I've come to personally hold with humility uh, what is called the futurist school. Okay, The futurist school, as you read through Revelation Uh, you find that the author records exactly what he's seeing. And many of these are actual people. They're actually places. They're actual events. One of the golden rules for Bible interpretation is to take the Bible literally. Unless the text itself suggests another interpretation. It's been said when the clear sense of scripture makes the good sense... Seek no other sense, lest you come up with nonsense, okay? A little ditty that's helpful as we learn to study uh, the scripture and even the difficult passages. And so the futurist view holds that this is prophecy that has yet to take place. Now, with that, I must say that in my youth, which maybe is still now, I don't know, um, Man, I used to just really have a tight grip on my personal position in Revelation and studying eschatology, which is the study of end times. Man, I was a bit proud in that, and I would just be a bit haughty in it. And over time, the Lord has just shown me that there are many different men, uh, good and, and, and way smarter than me, scholars, who study the Bible, they love the scripture, they love Jesus, and they hold to a different understanding than I do. And I just, I've come to like love those guys and just have a humility that just says, hey, you know what? You might be right. You might be right. My studying, my even just loose-handed saying, okay, is this what it is? At the end of the day, I've got to come and bring a message and I can say, I'm just convicted that, that it's this. And I'm I'm humbly convicted. You may even hold a different understanding than me. And that's okay, all right? These are not the essentials of the Christian faith when we're studying exactly how to divide out the book of Revelation. But how you're going to hear it taught here at Calvary Prineville is in the futuristic sense, is in a pre-tribulation rapture sense. That's just my conviction as I've studied it. It's also basically a distinctive of being at a Calvary Chapel. You're just going to probably hear it taught that way. It's not exactly why we do it. But but there is, you know what, there's some of the uh, preterist view, some of the historical view, some of the allegorical view. Some of those are actually, they got good points. They're helpful in application, and they're not totally wrong. Uh, And then in my opinion, there's times where it just doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture. So, That's kind of like a disclaimer as we get into it. You're going to be hearing it from a futurist view. You're going to be hearing it as prophecy that's yet to come. You're probably going to be hearing more of just this value of a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. We'll be getting into those studies. At the same time, there's some great guys out there. You've read them. You love them. You appreciate them. They love Jesus. We're all in this together. Preach the gospel. Love people. Watch and wait for his return because it's going to be soon. 
I think it was Billy Graham that once said, hey, you know what? We prepare for a pre-tribulation rapture, but we, uh, or rather, we pray for a pre-tribulation rapture, but we prepare for a post-trib rapture. That was Billy Graham's wisdom. So it's like, oh, Lord, as much as I'm seeing, you could come before any of this stuff takes place. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. As I study this, there's no time since John's writing in the last 2,000 years that these 100-pound hailstones have pummeled the earth or that continents have split apart and mountains disappear under the sea or a third of the earth is scored with, scorched with fire at one time. All of these events are still future and waiting to be fulfilled. And yet as we study the book of prophecy that verse 3 says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, Grant Osborne is helpful when he says, revelation must be characterized not as an apocalyptic, but as prophetic apocalyptic. Its purpose is not merely to outline the future intervention of God or to portray the people of God symbolically in light of that divine reality, but to call the saints to accountability on that basis. This is a prophetic book of warning as well as comfort to the church. What that means is prophecy is, is meant to edify the church. It's meant to speak words of exhortation and encouragement and comfort to men. And I believe that's what this book is going to do in us. There's going to be things for us to not only read and hear, but also things for us to keep, to, to live holy lives in light of the prophecy. Aiken wrote, the purpose of revelation is not to titillate our imagination to wild speculative interpretations. It is to inspire and motivate us to faithfulness and obedience. So, all that to be said, if you get online and listen to last week's teaching, you're going to have a bit of an introduction to the book as well. We went through the first six verses last week. And this week, we're going to hop into verse 7. I so wanted to get to this verse last week. It's a reason I told Johnny to sing the lion and the lamb last week at the park. He's coming in the clouds. Kings and kingdoms will bow down. We didn't get to that verse, so we sang the song again this week. If you notice, that was the first song we sang. He's coming on the clouds. Kings and kingdoms will bow down. Why? Because verse uh, 7 tells us this morning, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all of the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. So what we have here is a reference to the second coming of Jesus. This is not the rapture of the church. This is the second coming that's referenced. It's some, something that Every eye will see Jesus in that moment. Uh, even those who pierced him and killed him, they'll see him. It's a reference to the second coming of Jesus. In the first coming, Jesus came in humility. He came as a suffering servant. He came born in a manger. He came to lay his life down. But in his second coming, he's coming in power. He's coming in authority. He's coming on a stallion. He's coming with the armies of heaven, which I believe all Christians will be a part of that. Uh, and he's coming to vanquish his foes and to set up his kingdom here on this earth. 
in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, uh, which is called the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And we look forward to that day. We look forward to that day when Jesus will come in the clouds of heaven. Uh, I love back in the day, it was about the 90s when I remember hearing this for the first time. If you've ever listened to the Calvary Satellite Network or CSN, uh, then you've listened to Raul Reese probably, a guy from California, awesome pastor with an awesome testimony and an awesome Hispanic accent. It's the best, all right? And he would be teaching, and, and not only do we have this wonderful pastor, but there's another California pastor named Greg Laurie. Anybody heard of Greg Laurie, evangelist, the Harvest Crusades? Well, when Raul Reese would teach the Olivet Discourse with his awesome accent, he would say, we will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with Greg Laurie. Greg Laurie, great glory. Okay, anyways, so it's just proof that Greg Laurie will be there on that day. Anyways... Calvary Chapel joke, none of you care. Okay, you'll be coming with great glory and great glory. Both of them will be there. But Daniel chapter 7 also prophesies of this event. It says in Daniel seven thirteen, I was watching in the night vision and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. So there's this prophetic picture of the Messiah the son of man, the Messiah who would come to earth and, uh, and give his life, but he would also reign with power and glory after coming with the clouds. In Acts chapter 1, right after Jesus rose from the dead, 40 days went by where he was showing himself alive with many infallible proofs. Uh, then he took the disciples up on the Mount of Olives and he ascended into heaven. And do you remember that the disciples stood there watching him ascend? And then after a while went by, some angels came down and said, all right, move along, right? There's a commission to fulfill. Go tell the world about Jesus, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be with you to the end of the age, but it's time to, to skedaddle, okay? And they said, in the same way that he went up, he's going to come back down. He's going to come in the clouds just as he went up in the clouds. But notice The second coming tells us that all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. This is also prophetic from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. In that scripture, it says, I will pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So how incredible, hundreds of years before Jesus came, we have the book of Zechariah, and Zechariah prophesies of the second coming of the Messiah. When he comes, Israel will be down watching him come. They will see him. And and it says that this will be the first time in history where Israel as a nation looks up and they see the Messiah, the Son of Man coming, And they will see that they pierced him. An incredible prophecy of the crucifixion and the way the Messiah would die. But they would look up and they would see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And they would look upon him whom they pierced. 
And in that moment, they realize we killed the Messiah. Just like in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, he's preaching to a group of Jews, and the Holy Spirit pushes that truth into their heart that you killed the Lord and the Christ, the Messiah. And the Jews say, whatever do we do? And Peter says, repent. Repent of your sins and be baptized for the remission of sins and the promise of the Holy Spirit will come upon you and your children. The gospel was for the Jews back in the first century church. The gospel's for the Jews here at the second coming. They will look on him whom they pierced and they will mourn. They will wail. They will weep just as if one had lost their firstborn child. And you may not know, but when I was in Nepal this last year, as we were trekking through the mountains and riding on the buses through the mountains, we had a couple opportunities uh, to share the gospel with some Israelis who were on vacation trekking. And I was able to show from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And I preached to them that if you reject the Messiah, if you reject the Christ, you're going to be going through seven years of, you may be alive during seven years of the worst time on earth the world has ever known. And you know what? If you live through that, there will be a time where you will look up and you will see the Messiah coming in the clouds. And look what it says. And I would say, check out what it says. It says, you will see him whom you pierced. You'll see that it was Jesus. And you'll mourn and wail like you would wail for your firstborn son. So why not bow the knee to him now? Why not receive him as Messiah of your life now? Incredible to share uh, that truth with the Jews. And yet I must also add that it wasn't just the Jews that pierced Jesus and killed Jesus. Guess who else killed Jesus? You're looking at him. This guy. This guy killed Jesus. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. I was with those in the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, because I want to live my way. I want to do it my way. It was sin and it was rebellion. And now I've come to know with many of you that, that man, our rebellion nailed him to the cross. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead on the third day. And he'll raise anyone from the dead who believes upon him. And so all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. They will look on him whom they pierced, Zechariah tells us. David and the house of David will have this spirit of grace and supplication and look upon him whom they pierced as they mourn. And then moving on through the book of Revelation, looking at verse 8 of chapter 1 where it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So we all know, you know, the Alpha dog, the Alpha male, uh, speaks of being the first. And of course, Jesus says, I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. Uh, Alpha speaks of the beginning of the Greek alphabet. So that's, of course, where we get alpha, bet, alpha, beta. Alpha, the beginning letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega, 
being the final letter, sort of the Z of the Greek alphabet. It's been said that Jesus is the A to the Z and everything in between. He's the beginning and he's the end. And I would ask you this morning as you come to Calvary here, uh, maybe for the first time, maybe you've come many times, is that Jesus for you today? Is he your alpha in your life? Is he the first for you? And also, is he, he, he's not just get it out of the way in the morning and, you know, yeah, I surrendered to you as the Lord of my life, and, but you know what, now I'm going to go ahead and live for me because, see, then he wouldn't be the Lord of your life. <laughs> is, are you living for you or are you living for Jesus? Is he the alpha, the beginning, and also the omega in the end? Is he the A to the Z and everything in between in your life? He says here that he is currently, presently, and he was, past tense, and he is to come. We have this attribute giving to him as the almighty, the powerful one. And moving on in verse 9, it says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So again, we have John referenced here early on in the book of Revelation. John the Revelator, John the Apostle, John the writer of the Gospel of John and the three epistles of John, and now this prophetic work of Revelation. John, who references himself as a companion or a sharer or a partner, partnering with the listeners in what's called a tribulation, not to be confused with the tribulation or the great tribulation that we'll be referencing later on in our Revelation study. But at the time that the book of Revelation was written, the church was going through tribulation. They were going through affliction and trouble and distress and persecution. The book of Revelation came at a perfect time for the churches in Asia. Uh, There was great persecution going on uh, from the emperor Nero. And then after Nero passed on to Domitian, a horrific persecution where the church was uh, being slaughtered wholesale uh, and suffering All of the apostles had been martyred for the faith. You know, Peter is gone. John's brother James had been killed. And now the apostle is some 90 years old, and he's watching the church go through persecution. And God brings this incredible prophecy of comfort to the companions of John who are also going through tribulation, going through affliction. But you know what? That is the life of a Christian, all right? Really, the prosperity gospel has no place in the church. Here we see that the the apostle and the churches of Asia, they would go through tribulation. It's actually a promise in the New Testament for those who would be faithful to the gospel. They would suffer for the faith. And here he says uh, that he was a part of that, that he was on the island that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So uh, around 90 AD, the Roman emperor Domitian arrested John, the final living apostle, and sentenced him to death. He was boiled in a cauldron of hot oil and yet didn't die. 
He survived this boiling, and so they pulled him out of the pot and ended up exiling him on this rocky, mountainous island of Patmos where there were um, all sorts of mines and probably put him uh, to work there. This uh, desolate rock, 10 miles long by 6 miles wide, about 15 miles off the coast of Asia, Ephesus, there in the Aegean Sea, 90 years old, John goes to work in the rock mines of Patmos. And as he's there, verse 10 says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. There's an incredible phrase here as he describes when and how this revelation came to be. First of all, he was in the spirit. Your reference Bible will take you to Acts chapter 10 when Peter also was in the spirit. He was in a time of prayer up on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner. And as he was praying, he went into the spirit. He was, he was in fellowship with the spirit. The language in the book of Acts says that he went into a form of a, a trance where the Lord gave him a vision and gave him a revelation there about uh, salvation going to the Gentiles there in Acts chapter 10. Uh, but here we have John the Revelator, and uh, he was given a break or some time to spend in the spirit there on the island of Patmos. And notice also that it was on the Lord's day. It was on the Lord's day. And this is one place in the New Testament where we have reference to when the early church would spend time corporately worshiping and gathering. It's interesting that before the resurrection of Jesus, the Jews would spend that time of rest and specific concentrated worship on the Sabbath, which was Saturday. But once the resurrection took place, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, there was this incredible new cause to celebrate and to worship. And at that point, the church began to worship and gather and rest on Sunday. And it began to be known as the Lord's Day. It's incredible to think of just thousands of years of the law and the Sabbath. And that was such a, a big thing. And to see it transposed by the gospel to be a separate day of the week, remembering not only the deliverance of us from sin, not only the creation of the world as the, the Sabbath law, but also the atonement and the resurrection that was uh, provided for us by Jesus. You might even underline in your Bible that it was on the Lord's day when the Holy Spirit ministered uh, to John as John ministered in the Spirit and this vision took place. It's also in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, that we see that it was on the first day of the week when the disciples would come together to break bread. So early church corporate gathering was on uh, the Sunday, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. And it was also the time when those tithes and offerings were gathered up and collected. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. And I would just encourage you to go ahead and get onto our sermon player on our church website and type in something about the Sabbath or type in the search bar about the Lord's Day and listen to our Colossians series regarding the time of the Lord's Day. You'll notice that uh, John called it the Lord's Day. Church history called it the Lord's Day. A little ap apostolic handbook 
that was passed around with pastors called the Didache, uh, referenced the Lord's Day, that it was on that day that the church would gather. They would have the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. They would get in the Word. They would spend time in concentrated prayer. Baptisms would take place. Uh, the, the communion would take place. And the interesting thing is, only within the last 70 years has our culture completely tossed to the side this special day of reverent worship for the Lord. Sunday, the Lord's Day, has now become Sunday fun day, all right? When anything and everything else, anything that I can possibly do besides gather together with the people of God, read and hear the Word of God, have the Word of God heralded to me in the good news, spend time in communion with my brothers and sisters, spend the day resting in the Lord, keeping it holy and letting other people rest as well. It's only in the last 70 years that that has been tossed to the side for Sunday baseball games, Sunday rodeo events, Sunday NASCAR, Sunday NFL, you name it, Sunday is, is its now. And it's a tragedy in our culture. And one of the tragic things about the Lord's Day just being tossed to the side and really an absolute lack of value for the Lord's Day is that you watch families give themselves over to other things on the Lord's Day. You begin to watch those marriages fall apart. You begin to watch those children also have idols in their life to where they don't follow after Jesus. It's a tragic thing. And there goes the community around them. And so I just want to encourage us as we're in Revelation, not to make more than what was even meant to be said here, but to just say, you know what, man, the early church had a value for the Lord's day. And Lord, what has it become for me? It's become Sunday fun day. It's become Sunday do whatever I want day instead of Sunday the Lord's day. What can we do to keep it holy and to keep Jesus as the center? Lots to be said there. I think we did a four-week series on the Lord's Day a couple years ago. I think it was 2017, uh, back in about April as we were in Colossians. So uh, you're going to want to look at that at another time. But there in the Lord, on the Lord's Day, he was in the spirit and he heard behind, let me kick it back to his tents, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. It's interesting, and I caught myself as I was teaching, and I had a hard time correcting myself, but as you read what we began to read, um, which would be uh, verse, uh, verse 8, we have the revelation of the Father as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And here we're going to see the revelation of Jesus as John hears this loud voice as of a trumpet. It's interesting whose voice is it. We're going to see it's Jesus's loud voice, and it's as loud as a trumpet. Very interesting in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, when what I believe is a picture of the rapture of the church happens, John says, uh, the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here. Okay, so that's Revelation 4. Well, feel free if you want. Flip over a couple pages. When he says in 4.1, there, there was a first 
voice that I heard. It was as loud as a trumpet. Something we know comes with the rapture of the church is the sound of a trumpet. And it said, come up here. And John will say, immediately, I didn't have that written in my notes. Immediately, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. So something happened where, you know, that's my trumpet. Sorry. That's all I got. You know, come up here. Boom. I was in the spirit. What first Corinthians 15 says in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, it's been says that there's the blink, the wink and the twink. All right. This is science, okay? And that the twink, or twinkle, is one billionth of a second, okay? Twinkle of an eye, boom. I was in the spirit, and there's the throne of God, okay? That's something that happened where this trumpet voice said, come up here. But earlier in chapter 1, I hear the voice like a trumpet, he says. There's the voices of a trumpet. And in verse 11, it's saying, Okay, translation, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. And by the way, the original majority text Greek manuscripts don't have that part. Helpful that our Bibles put a little footnote in there for us. The trumpet says, the trumpet voice says, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest, with a golden band. So to catch us up in these verses, John was there and and he had his back turned to Jesus when he heard this voice of a trumpet. He turns around and he sees someone standing. And this is where for us, if if you just are reading the book of Revelation, maybe you just start checking out thinking, I'll never be able to understand this book. Because all of a sudden there's like a trumpet voice. I failed band, you know, that was a horrible season in high school for me, all right? All of a sudden, there's a guy with seven lampstands, like, burger, burger, you know, like, let's shut this and go find something else to do on a Sunday, right? Hold on. Simmer down. Chill out, okay? It's going to all be explained to us. But it just happens to be, as he turns around, he sees someone called the Son of Man, one like the Son of Man, standing in the midst of seven lampstands. And we're going to see in verse 20 what those lampstands signify. Okay? Now, look in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And um, some of these I had already for us this morning. Some I didn't. So you're going to want to just kind of make yourself a fashioned bookmark and just kick it over there to Daniel 7 and 10. Uh, because Daniel's a, a key Old Testament book for us in this series. So might as well just have a little bookmark there for you in the book of Daniel. But in Daniel 7, verse 13, Daniel said, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, 
Here we have it. One like the son of man. Okay. Now, the son of man uh, is, is Jesus's favorite reference for himself. When you read the gospels, Jesus is always calling himself the son of man. He, he liked to talk in the third person about himself like many of us do. Um, anyways, I think I heard Joe do it like 20 times this week. Joe doesn't like it when you talk about me like that. <laughs> anyways. Jesus also did the same. He talks about the son of man referencing himself, referencing the book of Daniel, chapter 7, chapter 10, because the son of man was known by the Jews to be the Messiah. He was known to have come from heaven and he would set up his kingdom on earth. And so Jesus would refer to himself from Daniel as the son of man. And it said that that son of man, we already already read it once, that he'd be coming in the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days, who is the father, and they brought him near before him. Then to him, this is the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which will not be destroyed. So son of man is just like the bomb, all right? He is the best, okay? He is given authority from the father and he's similar to the father in so many ways because he is also God. He is God the son and he is given a kingdom and a power and dominion. And later on in Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, John is going to look and see a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Okay, so already you're reading the book of Revelation and you heard about the Son of Man, and you're like, who's that? Okay, the Old Testament helps us understand that the Son of Man is Jesus. Jesus referenced Daniel. And his passage about the Son of Man regarding him being the Messiah, okay? So when John looks, he sees the Messiah, all right, who he already knew to be Jesus. He is clothed with a garment down to his feet. The clothing of Jesus indicates that he's a person of great dignity and authority. Back in the day, long garments were worn by those who don't have to work much, So they were a picture of great status and wealth and authority. And here Jesus is shown with a long garment, a long garment down to the feet with a sweet looking belt on, right? If you like to accessorize and you're going to love the book of Revelation because Jesus even has a tattoo later on in the book. So we won't go there yet. Okay. But here he's got a sweet belt on. Okay. It's a golden band also referenced in the book of Daniel chapter 10 verse 5. He was Girded with the gold of Uphaz, Daniel tells us in chapter 10, verse 5. But John the Revelator continues to see this vision of Jesus. And in verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. Also in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, you see the Ancient of Days, or God the Father, having head and hair uh, White like pure wool. Charles Spurgeon said, when we see 
in this picture, his head and his hair as white as snow, we understand the antiquity of his reign. He's a, he's a silver-haired, wise ancient. He's wise, and the Proverbs and the Scriptures speak of the wisdom that comes with the white hair. It's something that shows his antiquity of his reign with the white hair. And with eyes like a flame of fire. These fiery eyes display the fire of searching, penetrating judgment. This is also a reference from Daniel chapter 10 verse 6 where his body was like beryl and his face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like torches of fire. His arms and his feet were like, like many of you hardworking farmers out there, burnished bronze in color. And the sound of his words were like the voice of a multitude. Verse 15 tells us here that his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. So feet like fine brass. In a couple chapters, it's actually chapter 2, so one chapter, uh, Jesus is going to write to the church in Thyatira, and he's going to say, these things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and who have feet like fine brass. The commentator Clark said that this brass is an emblem of his stability and his permanence. And real quick, I'm going to pause there. Remember how we, we want the truth of Revelation to reveal Jesus to us? That's the point of all of this. So, so please, as we're going through these images of Jesus and these descriptions of the glorified Jesus as he is post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, post-ascension, we have Jesus described to us here in glory. So enjoy it, okay? Lap it up. Enjoy looking at the, the description here. And, and don't go like, how long are we going to be looking at this description of Jesus so we can learn about the Antichrist and who it is today? It's Barack Obama, I just know it, you know. Or, <laughs> might be Oprah or so, you know, I don't know, right? We're past that. that. It used to be Barack Obama. Now he's kind of fading out. And now it's like, I don't even know. You've got your ideas. You've been to the weird websites. Don't go there anymore. Okay. Antichrist.com. Don't visit it. All right. But let's enjoy this. Let's enjoy this vision of Jesus, this glory, the, the feet that once were crucified for your sins are now as hard as brass. They're like fine brass, this emblem of stability and permanence. Clark goes on to say, Brass being considered the most durable of all metallic substances or compounds. And I used to be a welder. Haven't welded in 18 years. So went to school for it, never used it. Kids stay in school. Okay. But I was like, wow, brass, the most durable of all metallic substances. I was going to call Fred. Fred, is this true? Is this about brass? So you guys look it up. Do a little Google search. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I looked it up. Went to my brass doorknob at my house. I was like, this is real brass. This is incredible, okay? Um, the point is the illustration of stability and permanence. Later on in the book of Revelation, we're going to see Jesus trampling out the wine press of the wrath of God 
with these fine brass feet, okay? But it goes on to say that his voice is as the sound of many waters. Growing up, I used to live in Klamath Falls, and to get up to the valley, we took Highway 58. Before Oak Ridge, you'd get to Salt Creek Falls. I don't know if anybody's ever been there, but oh my goodness, my childhood was marked with so many stops at Salt Creek Falls, and then you could take the trail down to the bottom of the waterfalls, and I just remember as a kid being like, these waters are so loud. There is so much power in them. And I'm sure you've been to Niagara Falls and you've got way more traveling experience under your belt. But uh, you can only imagine, though, the roaring of many waters. And as we've read before in other places, the voice of a multitude or a cheering crowd, the voice of the trumpet, so loud, so powerful. And in verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars. Oh, this is just too much. So hard to understand. Oh, gosh. You know? Eh, easy. Lampstands and stars. You think you can handle it? Broaden your mind a little bit, people. Let's read a book. Okay. Anyways. In his right hand, in his hand of authority, in his hand of comfort, in the hand that he's going to comfort John with in just a little bit, are seven stars. And the explanation will be there for us in verse 20. So just hold out just a little bit, all right? Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Oh, oh, no. No, okay, easy, all right? All right, there's some idiom here for us, all right? There's some symbolism here because the rest of the scripture is a commentary for us. Like in Isaiah 49.2, when Isaiah says, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. You guys have all had wives, you know, and when they look at you with the daggers, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? I haven't, but maybe you have. Okay. I've counseled enough of you. Okay. Well, here we have the prophet's mouth being like a sword. Or Hebrews 4.12, your mind already went there. For the word of God is living and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Tell me more, Rory. Tell me what it does. I will. It pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of your heart. There is no creature hidden from its sight or his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There's a reason when you read the Bible, you just feel your heart just burning that he knows what I've done. Because the word of God is like the surgeon's scalpel. Revelation 2 and in Revelation 19 are two other places in Revelation where we'll see Jesus with this sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. So don't get all tripped up on like, that's nasty, okay? Just think about how the word of God has that piercing ministry to the hearts of those who hear it. It also has a ministry of judgment. Notice that it goes on to say, well, it was Charles Spurgeon that said, There is no handling this weapon without cutting yourself, for it has no back to it. It's all edge. The word of Christ, somehow or other, is all edge. Amen? That's the word of God. Goes on to say, his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. 
You might remember when you read about the transfiguration, like in Mark chapter 9, that when Peter and James and John were led up by Jesus up on the mountain, that when Jesus was transfigured before them, Jesus began to shine so bright and white with light that his clothes were whiter than any launderer could launder them, all right? No Clorox bleach could do this work, all right? Shining splendor is what James and John and Peter saw. And here, John gets to see it again. His uh, countenance being like the sun, I think one translation says, during the noon day. David Guzik says, in our modern pictures of Jesus, we like to think of him as he was, not Jesus as he is. We prefer to see and know Jesus after the flesh, But Paul said, even though I have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now I know him no longer. Now we can know Jesus according to the glorified picture we have in the book of Revelation. Charles Spurgeon said, Christ in glory is none other than he who was here. No man ever loses anything by going to heaven. An ordinary man gains much by going there. So I'm sure my Lord is none the worse for entering into his glory. He is none the less tender, none the less zealous, none the less mighty to save. And just as we might have been glad to run to him when he was here, so may we gladly go to him now, for he is just the same. Our text in Revelation goes on in verse 17 and says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. This is a common response to visions of the glory of God. You know, Daniel had this happen in chapter 10, verses 7. He saw the vision of the glory of the Lord, and he fell down as uh, dead. In fact, Daniel says, when I saw this great vision, no strength remained in me for my vigor was turned to frailty in me and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words. Uh, I, when I hear of these prophets like, you know, falling down like they're dead and they hear something but they can't move, I was reminded of uh, many of you I'm sure have been so tired that you, you kind of pass out and you know stuff's going on around you, but you can't, you can't crack your eyes open. Uh, when my dad passed away, I was 19 years old, and I was just in grief. And I remember taking my pickup and driving up behind our house to a meadow where there were cattle grazing. And I got in the back of my truck, and I laid there, and I looked at the stars, and I cried. And I remembered my dad, and I prayed to the Lord, and I fell asleep. And uh, fell asleep there in the back of my pickup. And uh, at some point in the night... Um, a big bull walked up to my truck and stuck his head uh, in the tailgate and began like nuzzling my toe. And, uh, and I was so out of it that I remember like, you know, and like, I remember looking down and being like, oh, you know, tried to blow him away. Get out of here. And I remember seeing my dog kind of get up and walking over and I went back to sleep, and it moved on and didn't eat my foot, which was good. But uh, I can sympathize with Daniel, and I can sympathize with John here, just like, holy, you know, they just go into this uh, as-dead state, maybe even terrified, but the Lord lays his right hand on him and gives him comfort. Now, 
Just as falling down dead is the common response to seeing the glory of the Lord, the Lord has the common response to that of saying, do not be afraid and bringing the comfort. Do not be afraid. Here he says, I am the first and I am the last. Quoting from even Isaiah, besides me, there is no God, as Isaiah would say. In verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead And behold, I am alive forevermore. It's this great scripture of the resurrection of Jesus. He's living today. He lives. As the old song, the old hymn says, because he lives currently, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. Life is worth a living just because he lives. And Jesus says, it's true, I live. I was dead, that, that did happen, but I didn't stay dead. I'm alive, and behold, I'm going to be alive tomorrow, and the next day, I'm, I'm alive forevermore. And what comfort and hope there is for us who follow this Jesus, that tomorrow, the next day, maybe as we would come to the, the place of death, we know that that is just, for a Christian, it's like laying our head on a pillow. You need to be afraid just as much as you're scared going to bed at night, where you would sleep and be in the presence of the Lord and you would live forevermore. He was dead, but behold, he's alive forevermore. I heard this week of the El Campiador. Let me read the El Campiador, which stood for the outstanding warrior or the one who stands out in the battle was a man, a champion, a warrior who had been slain in battle. And those who had been accustomed to dread his mighty sword did not for a time know that he was dead because his followers mounted the dead Campiador on horseback. And the very sight of him, though it was only his corpse that they saw, made his adversaries flee before him. Great trick, the old battlefield trick. But here, our great leader, we don't have to prop him up and make him look alive and move his arms around like, hey, it's me, Jesus, you know. Uh, He's alive. He's alive forevermore. And in his living, it says he has the keys of Hades and of death. He has the keys of the unseen realm or of hell. We know from our culture, the grim reaper or that Weird-faced character from Scream or the devil with a pitchfork seemed to be harvesting souls. Or if you ever watched the movie Ghost, when I was a kid, I saw that movie. And when the little demons would come up and get the souls and carry them down, I was like, oh, demons and oh, the Grim Reaper. But you know what? They have no power. Jesus is the one who holds the keys of Hades and of death. And because he's alive, we can face tomorrow. And we need not fear because we're given life. Well, we're going to wrap up here and we're going to get from verse 19 into chapter 2 next week. But 19 tells us this. We can have uh, the rest of the worship team come back up right now. In verse 19, we have what I've been calling since my youth the divine outline. Okay? It's here in verse 19 where John is given an outline of the book of Revelation. And I believe it's a great outline of eschatology and studying the end times as well. Here's our outline. Jesus tells John, write the things which you have seen. 
So first of all, write the things which you've seen. And I believe that's chapter one of the book of Revelation. You know, John was so in awe that he had seen Jesus. He writes in the gospel of John. He writes in 1 John about the value of being an eyewitness of Jesus. How fitting that Jesus would tell him, write what you have seen. Because not only had Jesus seen Jesus in his first coming, but he also saw Jesus here in chapter 1 in all of his splendor and all of his glory. John had seen Jesus. Write what you've seen. I believe that's chapter 1. And then he moves on to, and write the things which are. And that's chapters 2 and 3. So we'll be getting into chapter 2 and 3, which is called the church age. It's the letters to the seven churches. And we'll see as we study those two chapters how these chapters are a panoramic snapshot of church history. It's just helpful in understanding. It's helpful in following along. Uh, but, uh, but we're loose-handed in that. But chapters 2 and 3, I believe, are the church age. The things that currently are. The things which we're living in right now. We are living in the church age. And then he says, write the things which will take place after this. And that's chapters 4 through 22. Everything that will happen after the church age. From chapter 4 and on, we see the rapture, the rise of the Antichrist and the false prophet, the tribulation, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the persecution of the Jews, the battle of Armageddon, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the second coming of Christ, the great white throne judgment, the millennial reign, the final battle, and the new heavens and the new earth. Chapter 6 through really uh, the end of the book are the things which will take place after the church age. So that's a great outline. We'll be hearing that a lot as we move on through the book. Write the things which you've seen, chapter 1, the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, the church age, and the things that happen after the church age, chapter 6 and on. If you guys want to go ahead and set your things aside, we'll go ahead and move towards prayer and a final worship song here.